BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, April 15th, 2016, and I hope you've done your taxes. You're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Heart disease is the number one killer worldwide, across the board, globally now. Wait, it's not mosquitoes? No, it's not mosquitoes. As much as I despise mosquitoes, it's still heart disease. And it's been that way for a number of years. Now, we've made a lot of gains against heart disease, particularly a type of heart disease called coronary artery disease. This is the one people are most familiar with, where there's like a buildup of of plaque um, from cholesterol or dietary effects. And that's the number one killer still, but there are other types of heart disease in there, particularly arrhythmias, where we're not making as many gains, and it's still killing upwards of, and the estimates are hard because there are complications to this, but upwards of 300,000 people in the U.S. alone. So we don't really know the causes of certain types of arrhythmias, and many physicians still caution their patients against certain risk factors that have just been long-held beliefs, like don't drink too much caffeine or limit your alcohol consumption because you could get those kind of palpitations. And these risk factors are not really holding up to scrutiny these days. Because I have a friend who has a congenital heart condition and she completely avoids any caffeine, including even, you know, just she doesn't even drink decaf on the off chance that it might be caffeinated. Well, that's why I talked to Dr. Greg Marcus. He's the director of clinical research for the Division of Cardiology at UCSF and has recently launched a number of innovative studies to look into these risk factors, particularly for arrhythmia. His specialty is AFib, one that you probably hear a lot of commercials about. And he's really interested in trying to track heart disease in this way, but instead of using very specific studies, actually incorporating big data and making a huge study to look at a whole number of factors that can lead to these arrhythmias. Awesome. I look forward to hearing what he has to say. Yeah, I had a double espresso right before this, so I'm ready to go. Tell me the good news, doctor. Perfect. Uh, Just one note to our listeners. I am an academic member of staff at UCSF, but I have no involvement in the studies. Academic member of staff. What does that mean? Uh, It means they sign my checks, I think. (laughs) Excellent. I like it. But before we get to a little bit about heart disease, anything catch your eye in the news this week? 
Oh, yes. I think probably the best title on the internet, which I already tweeted about, came from Carl Zimmer, one of our favorite science writers. Just on the show a couple weeks ago. Yeah, a couple weeks ago. And he (laughs) wrote a piece called Science Fairs Are As Flawed As My Solar Powered Hot Dog Cooker. Did Carl hate on science fairs? (laughs) He did. And, you know, in some ways, he notes how science fairs really do uh, mimic what what it feels like to be a scientist. Let me give you an example. He talked about how his daughter got really interested in a potential science project, and she decided to try it out and enter it into a science fair, and then she got bombarded with paperwork. Yeah, there is a lot of paperwork when you go through science fairs, particularly when you start to go through the upper level science fairs. Yeah, but even if you're a scientist, I mean, you spend a lot of your time writing grants and filling out papers. So I feel like that's an accurate representation of what it is to be a (laughs) scientist. (laughs) But it doesn't exactly engage kids into wanting to become scientists. Although you might say this is proper advertising for what it might be like. No, but the truth is nobody goes into science to do paperwork. But the point that Carl makes is even more important than that, which is that in order to, in, in, you know, to encourage his daughter to continue to work on this science project, he enlisted the help of some friends who were scientists at Yale, which is nearby where he lives. And he has a big network of scientists that he can choose from to contact as his friends, a science writer. And that is something that a lot of people in this country just don't have access to. And that actually jives with some of my experiences of science fairs where, you know, it takes a lot of parent engagement to get to the end of the science fair. And of course, if a parents are both working difficult jobs that take up long hours they don't have the time to spend on all these extracurricular things for their kids that their kids can't seem to do on their own so I think the point that Carl was making and that other people have made as well is that especially in these higher level science fairs like the Googles and you know the big ones that's you know a place where privilege really rears its ugly head so there are a lot of stories about that this week mostly because the White House Science Fair was this week. Uh, and so there was an article in The Atlantic where it very similarly toned from Hannah Shank and, and one in Wired from Rhett Allen, uh, similar about privilege and access being a main driver to success within these. So I'll just note personally, I have a long history with science fairs. I I judged a science fair, a regional one, as, as recently as just a uh, this past year, my dad used to be a judge on the Intel Science Fair, which was the biggie. Uh, and then I've uh, gone down to the Google Science Fair multiple times. So I've seen a lot of different iterations to this. And you should put out the image, if if you have it, of the potato battery or the potato clock and the pickle battery and all of that, kind, or the volcano. That isn't what we're talking about here. You know, I went to the Google Science Fair and there was a presentation about Breast, uh, of targeting uh, BRCA1 breast cancer in a higher efficient way. It, that's not something you expect to see in a 17-year-old science fair project, but that's sort of the level of these, that they have a real significant impact to society and they're like real science work in a lot of ways. And that does take access and privilege. And I'm not bemoaning that, but there's a lot of hate coming out when we have a, a president that put on a science fair which is A, amazing, but B, it's like he's lending all that he has, which is really a, a bully pulpit, like a, a loudspeaker to this. And did you see who like was in that room with him today? It was like YouTubers that do science and all these science communicators that are a little bit below the radar of most people. 
Hey, how come we weren't there? Are we are we are we too far below the radar? <laughs> I think we might be a notch below there. Um, and it it was great to see him celebrate that. And it's not politically reasonable for him to be like, I'm going to have a science communication summit at the White House. There's has to be kids involved in some way. So I look at the positivity of these science fairs as bringing together all of these people. Um, to sort of celebrate science. And it was a really good moment. I'm not going to be cynical for once about the White House Science Fair. And the regional science fairs I've gone to really weren't, you know, dripping with privilege. There were some real accessible, easy projects that didn't require the kind of parent involvement you have. And so it's really those high-end ones, the the Intel one, what Intel's no longer sponsoring it anymore. And the Google one, where you're seeing projects that are sort of take years of effort and a lot of parent involvement. And I don't think that's what we, that's the common science fair trope in most regional uh, situations. They need to be improved. And I think Rhett Allen had some great points in his Wired article on how to improve them. But come on, they're like, it's part of culture, uh, yeah. like science culture to have the science fair. No, I totally agree. And I think we should have science fairs. I think they should just be done by the kids. And I think that there should be a kind of understanding of the kind of involvement you get, even from other scientists. I've actually mentored a couple of high school students who proposed science experiments in a couple of these fairs. And, you know, one of my students, she had the ability to go and get like a thousand dollar grant and buy a whole bunch bunch of EEG monitors and study the question of whether listening to music while you're studying impairs your ability to, you know, remember in this particular she task. She's giving us some advice on grant writing. <laughs> um. Yeah, but you know, but still like she she is in a school that has discretionary funding for this kind of thing and, you know, insofar as I, you know, I want to support her and I, you know, and, and I think that that's great, but you know, it's it still it takes a kind of chutzpah too just to like email out of the blue somebody that you don't know just because you think that their work is interesting. And so I guess I just w- wish that there was and maybe there are organizations that I should actually, you know, spend more time volunteering for um, that just were able to provide that kind of infrastructure support for kids that don't necessarily have the access through their parents. I think that's fair. And I would just say that science fairs are not homogenous. There's a lot of them that are really scraping by and are driven by the students. And and you can see it in terms of the the projects and the and sort of the ideas come through. And I think it'd be a shame to sort of uh, re-engineer those in some way. But the upper echelon probably needs some tweaking in some sense. So we agree there. I guess I guess the alternative too is like you know if you want to become a professional hockey player, your parents are going to pay you know through the nose if they have the money to get you into all the right specialty coachings and stuff. So so in every domain, that's for a separate podcast. Because you know, I, I think our listeners know I'm a big hockey fan, and the playoffs started, so let's not go down that. Path. All right, we'll leave that alone. With that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Dr. Greg Marcus. Inquiring Minds fans, there's another podcast that we think you'd be interested in. It's called Bite. It's a new podcast from our friends at Mother Jones. And it's especially designed for people who think hard about their food. Join acclaimed food and farming blogger Tom Philpot, Mother Jones editors Kira Butler and Maddie Oatman, and a tantalizing guest of writers, farmers, scientists, and chefs as they uncover the surprising stories behind what ends up on your plate. I really loved the Cafeteria Confidential episode last week, which took you into school lunches. Uh, So check it out. You can subscribe in iTunes or any other podcasting app.
Dr. Greg Marcus, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to start at a very high level about heart disease, which we actually haven't covered on the show, but it is the number one killer in the United States. How are we proget- progressing in the in sort of the fight against heart disease? Well, so and I, to emphasize your point, it's not only the number one killer in the United States, it's actually surpassed other causes of death around the world to become the most common killer around the world. And I think that's that's a product of success in many ways, that as um, nations become um, wealthier and, and nutrition improves, this is the other side of that coin, that um, especially populations more prone to diabetes, hypertension, stroke, heart attack, um, as they um, their diet changes and their lifestyle changes, um, the unfortunate side to that is that heart disease is, is actually increasing. Um, so we've made a lot of progress in understanding heart disease, in treating it, and in preventing it. And the great majority of prevention strategies have focused specifically on coronary artery disease. And I think when people talk about heart disease and death from heart disease, what they often are thinking about is coronary disease, which means blockages in the arteries that supply blood to the heart. The reason I make the point is we've been good at, relatively good at preventing heart disease. And there's, there's data that, at least in the US, that the most severe forms of, of heart attack, what we call an uh, ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Myocardial infarction simply means death of, of heart uh, muscle cells, which is most commonly due to an abrupt blockage of blood flow to the heart. Cardiology is to the point sometimes. Right. <laughs> and the ST elevation is just a sign on the traditional EKG when you have electrodes on your chest. And that represents the most severe form. And there's very good data actually written by uh, or, or spearheaded by um, a fellow here at UCSF using data from Kaiser showing that ST segment elevation MI has gone down over time. And that may be due to a variety of things. It may be due to statins. It may be due to less smoking, more physical activity, and and better awareness regarding a healthy diet, for example. Um, Now, coronary disease and myocardial infarctions remain extremely common, um, either because we're not adequately addressing risk factors or because in some cases, people may develop that disease even in the absence of clear, clear risk factors. But the point I really wanted to make is that I think there's a growing appreciation for the other forms of heart disease, such as arrhythmias and heart failure, which are growing in prevalence, according to some studies. And these prevention strategies may be different for those diseases, and prevention has not been as emphasized for those diseases. So one uh, example is atrial fibrillation which is uh, one of my main areas. We see commercials for AFib all the time right now. Right, Uh, primarily for stroke prevention because atrial fibrillation, which is essentially a very rapid quivering of the upper chambers of the heart that translates down to the lower chambers, causing typically a rapid pulse, although not always, is a very important risk factor for stroke. And we have means to treat atrial fibrillation, although those strategies are suboptimal, and we can talk about that if you wish. But there's really very little in the way of preventing atrial fibrillation. And in fact, we're lacking data on that. And that's where I'm very interested in that, as are many others, from a research standpoint, predicting AFib and what are the 
trying to identify the modifiable risk factors for atrial fibrillation. So this is your area of specialty. And and just to sort of relate to our listeners what this sort of feels like, does it feel like the fluttering of the heart when your heart sort of skips a beat, as it were? And then you have to come in and get, you know, an, an EKG or some sort of electrical... Uh, test to diagnose it. Yeah, so it may make sense to to back up and just talk briefly about abnormal heart rhythms in general, um, because it can be very difficult to distinguish them by symptoms alone, by how a patient feels alone. And I don't want to alarm uh, too many people who may be listening. So I'm it, drinking a coffee while we're doing this. I'm a little alarmed. We'll see right, how it so goes. Let's come, we'll come to back to drinking to caffeine and the role it, may, it might play in these, in these heart rhythm disturbances. So arrhythmias or abnormal heart rhythms generally can be rhythms that are too slow, rhythms that are too fast, or rhythms that are irregular. Rhythms that are too slow, we, I often get asked by patients, uh, sometimes even, even other healthcare providers, well, is this rhythm, this person's heart rate is 45. Isn't that too slow? There isn't really a rhythm, a, a number that makes something too slow. We determine that a rhythm is too slow based on symptoms. So very healthy people, trained triathletes, marathon runners, when they sleep, their heart rates could be in the 30s. Oh my goodness. Maybe even lower at points, but it's not, it's not anything to worry about. However, if someone's heart rate is in the 40s, and then they get up and walk around or they go run up some steps and their heart remains in the 40s and they feel faint because of that. That's a problem. Or someone passes out because their heart is too slow. That's a problem. So it's not really the number. It's more the symptom. And there's not a lot to do about rates that are too slow with the exception of um, stopping medicines that might be contributing to that or putting in a pacemaker. And that's really what pacemakers do. All pacemakers do is prevent the heart from going too slow. And so do we have some idea of underlying causes outside of medicines that are prescribed for a lot of these situations? So the great majority of the time when someone has a rhythm that's too slow, it's a, represent, it's a manifestation of a dynamic process that has to do with what we call the autonomic nervous system, which has two branches to it. The adrenaline side, which is also referred to as the sympathetic side, and the vagal side, also called the parasympathetic side. So these two branches of the, this part of the nervous system that is not under our conscious control called the autonomic nervous system uh, influence our blood vessels, our gut, our heart, our brain, um, our muscles, and they're in constant tension or in constant balance. So when we get scared, when we get excited, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, that's normal, that's, that's adrenaline. When we're asleep, usually when we're digesting a big meal, we have a little bit more of the opposite, the vagal tone. One of the most common causes of a heart rate going very slow and the most common cause of passing out is there is a surge of vagal tone for some reason. That might be in response to a big surge of, of uh, adrenaline. So someone who faints at the sight of blood, for example, first the, the, the thinking is they first get this surge of adrenaline and then the vagal side that balances that out says, whoa, 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 that's, that's too much, slow down, but then it's a little too much and the heart rate slows way down, their blood vessels dilate, their blood pressure drops. You, because of gravity, you get less perfusion to the head and the person faints. And that's actually an evolutionary response because that allows gravity to bring blood flow back to the brain. We'll call that normal. That's yeah. it. That's a total normal response. That is. So that's not 
uh, a dangerous sign. It's and it's very common. It can be very. It can be a big hassle. It can be very unpleasant. But it's the most common cause of passing out. Now, for those who have more more of a structural problem, so not a dynamic issue, but more a structural problem, such that there's a a block in the electrical system, or the heart rate just cannot go fast enough, even no matter how much adrenaline you have on board. That's felt to be due to scarring in the conduction system or fibrosis. And why that occurs, this goes back to my original point about focus on prevention and understanding of predictors and etiology. Again, there's very little on this for conduction disease. And we and others are just starting to do epidemiologic studies to understand what causes that? And are there targets to prevent the development of conduction disease or to treat it apart from simply putting in a pacemaker? There are others who are working on stem cells, for example, to kind of regenerate that conduction system. But the, the question in my mind is, is there some way to interrupt or reverse the kind of the natural process that contributes to that? So there's this notion out there that drugs can be a contributing factor to develop arrhythmias, and particularly caffeine. I think everyone kind of can relate to that idea of having a little too much caffeine and feeling like your heart's going to leap out of your chest, which has long been associated as a risk factor. There's actual medical guidelines that for a long time established that, including alcohol and other uh, different risk factors. Does that actually hold up to where our understanding is now? So we just did a study looking specifically at caffeine consumption and the number of early beats or premature beats that um, individuals have based on 24-hour halter monitoring in about 1,200 people who had enrolled in an NIH. Oh, that's a really big study. It's a fairly big study. So this was from the NIH-sponsored cardiovascular health study. Uh, that enrolled about 5,000 people and about 1,200 underwent this halter testing. Those participants were all asked about their dietary um, patterns, caffeine consumption, for example. So we specifically looked at what we thought might actually be healthy caffeinated products, given recent evidence that tea, coffee, and chocolate may have some effects that are helpful from a heart standpoint. And our concern was that there isn't a lot of great data in favor of harmful effects of caffeine. And we wonder if some physicians are inadvertently withholding these potentially beneficial products. So going back to the kind of general categories of arrhythmias, so there's the slow ones and then there's the fast ones. And that can include these early beats. So we all have these early beats. If we do a monitoring study on someone. We put a halter monitor. We put a, we, we now have these very small patches we can put on and monitor someone's heart rhythm for a couple weeks. You will essentially almost always find some early beat in the lower chamber, which is called a premature ventricular contraction or PVC, or a uh, early contraction from the upper chamber, PAC or premature atrial contraction. If you take a heart cell out of the heart and put it in a petri dish and keep it alive, it will beat on its own. So every heart cell has the capability to beat on its own. And for some reason, once in a while, these guys just beat a little bit earlier than the normal heartbeat uh, would. Now, there is new evidence that if one has a lot of these early beats, um, and we showed this using this same data, so the same data set, Those people with a lot of early beats are at higher risk of developing heart failure. 
Doesn't mean that everybody who has a, a lot of those early beast develops heart failure, but it's a risk factor. It remains unknown, and this is an active area of research, whether the what we observed in the general population, that more early beats predicts more heart failure, whether that's really causal or are we just, is that just a manifestation of some occult myopathy that is yet to be recognized? Now, going back to the, the caffeine, one of the re reasons we were interested is um, to, to figure out, well, are there easily modifiable risk factors for these early beats? And there is this conventional wisdom that more caffeine leads to more of these early beats. Um, I've certainly seen some patients where that seems to be the case. I've had patients who are on very high dose caffeine because they're on pain meds and they need to really stay awake. And there does seem to be a relationship. But it's very surprising that if you look at rigorous studies, there's not great data in the general population that there's a relationship. To cut to the chase regarding our results, we could find no evidence of a relationship between regular caffeine consumption and the number of these early beats. So where did those guidelines come from that said, uh, you know, be careful about your caffeine consumption in, in regards to this? So I'm not certain, but I my, my suspicion is from anecdote. And I, I again, I do think there are some patients where there is this relationship. And, but you're talking about patients that are drinking lots of caffeine. Right. Well, so this was going to be my other point is that I think it's very likely that there is a there are a lot of idiosyncratic relationships here and that and this is relevant to the whole notion of precision medicine this idea that um, we need to look at each person as their own individual with their own unique genetics their own unique environmental exposures their own unique experiences and understand how certain exposures influence them as an individual, how certain drugs influence them as an individual. And the hope is that with modern uh, techniques to, um, to sequence genes, as well as potentially to monitor activity, utilizing technology, that maybe we can really get down to that level. And I think that this caffeine early beat relationship may be a good example of this. And I think there's a lot of that in arrhythmias and going back to AFib where different people seem to have different triggers and, and different people can describe very different triggers for the same disease. We certainly see this in atrial fibrillation where some swear when they drink alcohol, they get AFib. Others, there doesn't seem to be a difference. Um, others will say when I uh, exercise, I get AFib. Others will say, when I'm completely at rest, I get AFib, and exercise will get rid of the AFib for me. So there, this is, I think, the next step and where we're headed, and there is this precision medicine initiative, which is hopefully going to fund this effort to, to try to understand this better. So there is that movement afoot, as you mentioned, to, to have more holistic approach to understanding all of the your sort of factors that go into a, a diagnosis like this. At the same time, so much of what you're talking about is based off of these long-term studies of, of heart disease. Going back to, I think the most famous one is the Framingham study right. that's been going on since, what, the 40s now? Late 40s, yeah. With about how many patients? I think it's like 5,000 patients or something it's more like than that. that, because they now have several cohorts of several thousand each. Uh, so how do you approach this in sort of modern times now where conducting studies like that over generations with thousands of patients is, let's just call it expensive. 
Right. We'll use that term. So how do you do it in a modern age right now? Because there is a litany of different devices and wearables that proclaim that they can help at least track some part of this. Right. So we, so I, I um, so first, um, just to acknowledge the importance of studies like the Framingham Heart Study, the Cardiovascular Health Study, which I mentioned, there are others like the Atherosclerosis Risk and Community Study, also called ERIC. There's another one called MESA. Um, all NIH-sponsored have been extremely valuable, continue to be extremely valuable. But as you said, very resource-intensive, very expensive. They tend to enroll a few thousand individuals. And I work with those cohorts frequently, and, and they're fantastic, and we've learned a great deal. The whole notion that high cholesterol, smoking, high blood pressure are important to all of the outcomes we've been talking about, heart attack, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, is thanks in large part to those studies. So they are extremely important. And I, I should also add that though they're all very good examples of a gap that if one relied completely on industry funding, um, industry funding would not fill that gap, those, those kind of fundamental mechanisms that um, provide us understanding of, of these targets. We're not going to get an argument from our show about continued federal funding for, <laughs> right, for right. large-scale studies like this. So we recognize that, as I said, cardiovascular disease remains the number one killer. Um, funding, federal funding tends to be going down. Not only that, but funding for clinical research or the, the cost of clinical research is going up. But at the same time, we have this, now we have access to technology um, unlike we've ever had before. So we started a study called the Health E-Heart Study, with a little E as in electronic, with the idea that we would leverage technology that nearly every American has access to for a number of reasons. One, in order to make participation more convenient, such that our cohort would not be geographically restricted. They wouldn't have to come into a brick and mortar facility in one city, or like in with a couple of those other studies I mentioned, they're restricted to four cities. Anyone from everywhere, as long as they have an internet, internet access, they can access the study. It's also people who are uh, rural can access the study. Uh, people who aren't able to travel can access the study. That's one major part. Um, two is it's less expensive. So we've built this infrastructure and we continue to work on it and we continue to iterate on it. But the kind of neat thing is, is that the more people enroll, the the less expensive per participant the study becomes. There are economies of scale, just exactly. like that. So exactly. how many people are you trying to enroll in so, a study like this? Yes, so we are hoping to get to a million people. That's a fairly large study. Let's just call it what it is. Um, I'm going to apply a little skepticism to this because you're talking about a pretty large cohort. Let's just call it what it is. How are they monitoring themselves? In, in what way, like what data are they garnering from these sort of household devices? Yeah, so the study collects data in a variety of ways. So number one, we use surveys. Um, some of them we've built, and then others we've used well-validated surveys that have been established in, in, stu in previous studies regarding things like sleep, smoking, alcohol, uh, depression, quality of life. But then participants can connect certain devices. So they can connect up their Fitbit, for example, so that for the first time we can have, in a, a rigorous way, we can actually look at steps and connect that to patient demographics and medical, medical conditions. And then every six months, we ask participants to uh, fill out new surveys so we can identify new events. 
There are other devices. So there are Bluetooth-enabled blood pressure cuffs, scales, uh, glu glucometers or, or um, blood glucose monitors, pulse oximeters, where essentially if, if you go out and buy one of these, and, and I should say we're device agnostic. We don't make money off of any of this. We're, we would love it if every device in the world would provide us access to their um, data. In some cases, there is such access available, and then we hook it up. And the way that normally one would work with one of these scales, you go to the, you buy one on uh, online or something, you hook it up, usually there's a login on the computer, and then every time you step on that scale, that data is automatically uploaded. Sure, I have I have all of these tracking things. I have the Wi-Fi scale, I have like the the smartwatch, the smart that tracks all of this stuff. So I think there's two questions that come up from this. How useful is data, the granular data that comes out of this? Because most of the times it's really measuring like steps or periods of activity. It's not the level of data that you're used to in these in these kind of more intensive studies where you have like EKGs coming out of them in, in, to a certain extent. Okay, so, well, remember that those studies, um, this is one of the criticisms of those studies, is that they are providing a snapshot in time. So all of those valuable studies we talked about rely on visits every, maybe every four years, maybe every other year, one visit, and usually, usually one visit, and usually that's in an artificial environment where someone comes into a clinic or some other environment, they're not at home. So we are now able to measure, you know, so instead of looking at, okay, let's look at that blood pressure from when they first come in and then couple years later and a couple years after that one time, we're potentially looking at serial blood pressures on a daily basis while these people are at home. Some of these other things, Fitbits, and then also, I mean, again, there are a variety of devices we can connect to. Um, and we've worked with some companies to develop uh, apps, and we have an app ourselves now in development that will enable us to leverage the data from smartphones, which of course people carry with them all the time. So we can look at things like screen time and things like steps and activity based on the smartphone. So that's what I like to call real-time, real-life data that these conventional studies were not able to capture. Um, there are a lot of challenges to analyzing that data. It's extremely dense. It is you know, what people refer to as big data. It's also more complex. So big data, um, in my opinion at least, is not simply a lot of data. It's not, you know, we know how to handle that. It's much more complex than that because now you're talking about repeated measures within a given individual, both repeated predictors and repeated outcomes, and then multiplied over many, many individuals. So figuring out how to manage that data and most Interpret that data. And, yeah. Exactly. It gets complicated. So how reliable is this data? Because that's an, another factor here is when you have a, more of that controlled study environment, while there's problems uh, that you've already highlighted, I mean, one thing that you can at least say is that, you know, X patient came in. Yeah. Now you have sort of a distributed management plan. How reliable is is looking at the data that they're reporting? Can you trust that the the pulse measures that you see are actually accurate compared to what you see at a hospital? Yeah, no, that's a great uh, question, an important one, and another goal of the study, and that is to validate a lot of these measures, these sensors, these wearables, and not only to validate them, but to identify how to best use them to enhance health and wellness. So in general, these devices have tended to be marketed directly to consumers, right? Fitbit's a good example. 
Um, so is it useful for health? We make that assumption. Um, but how valid is it? And if it is valid, what's the best way to, to use, use it? So that's another part of our mission. And I should say another thing that makes this study different is that it's, it's not simply a cohort study. W what's happened is it's expanded into a research platform that has multiple components to it. So when a participant consents, they essentially initially consent to, yes, I will fill out surveys. Yes, you can contact me. And then they're invited to provide other consents if they are eligible um, for something else. Like, yep, I will connect that device. And then there are studies that they may, may be eligible for. So a perfect example is one we're doing now using an app that can be downloaded to a smart watch. So going back to atrial fibrillation, um, as I mentioned, it's a very important cause of stroke. Going back to your question regarding symptoms, how do people know? I don't think I answered that. How do people know that they have atrial fibrillation? So some people feel palpitations. They feel their heart racing. Some people just feel fatigued. A lot of people don't feel it. And so that's a major challenge. There are people with this disease that don't know it, and yet they're at risk for stroke. And if we knew they had atrial fibrillation, we could give them a blood thinner and prevent stroke in them. That We know that first. There's very rigorous data that blood thinners in the appropriately selected patients with atrial fibrillation will reduce stroke and death. So the point of this app is the smartwatch has a heart rate monitor on it. And the idea is that it would automatically detect AFib. But does that actually work? So part of our job as scientists and physicians is to see, is there clinical utility? What is the clinical utility? So we, are, we now have a study um, where healthy heart participants are all being invited, if they have a smartwatch, to download this app. And the idea is we're going to validate that. So we're validating that in several ways. One, we have patients undergoing um, cardioversion procedures where we shock them out of their AFib. We have them wear the watch. We know they're in AFib by standard EKG. Then we shock them out. We know they're in a normal rhythm and we use a smartwatch. We have another uh, in-person study where people are being given heart uh, rhythm monitors that they wear and wear the smartwatch um, out in the wild for a month. But then also remotely, we're enrolling healthy heart participants. Now, another company uh, that we've worked with and a device that can be connected is the Alive Core device, which is a single lead ECG that can be obtained using a uh, case on a smartphone. They actually have an FDA-approved algorithm to detect AFib. It's not perfect in my experience, but it's not unreasonable. It's a useful flag. We can't expect perfect at this stage. We're, right. we're not there yet. Right. So, we, so we're using that to help validate uh, this study as well. So this is actually very uplifting. I had a conversation with friends. We watched like the Apple launch event that happened last week where they introduced a new phone, and they spent a majority of that event talking about research kit and, and the home care and all of this, how they're collecting data using the smartwatches and your phone and how that can actually be an input to research. And a lot of, there was a lot of cynicism that came in from the tech reportage that was, oh, they're doing this for appearance. Yeah. But you actually, you're suggesting there is a lot more utility here. We're just not at the point where everything is validated yet, where we can get to the next stage. Absolutely. And I think we need to separate the, the wheat from the chaff and that's going to be an ongoing effort. And that's part of our job as an, you know, academic uh, investigators and physicians is to play that role, um, to figure out how to best use these, you know, industry funded devices that are made for profit. I mean, that's when they're marketing to consumers, that's their purpose, but that doesn't mean they can't be useful. Um, and it's, you know, 
our job to kind of hopefully serve as that intermediary um, to figure out how to make them uh, most useful. So I'm going to ask you a difficult question. So predicting forward, taking what Healthy Heart is established as a platform where it's using some, it's collecting some basic information now, narrowing down and, and having those folks participate in more rigorous study. Could you see that applied forward with even more, a bigger data set? Could you be using the location, the GPS information for my phone to track, you know, that I'm going to fast food joints when I should, when I say I'm not? And, Absolutely. Uh, is that where we're heading? Is is the the more information that you can gather from these devices, and and sort of separating that out to see how it can actually inform different uh, learnings down the line. Absolutely. So we actually have a study where people were, and again, this was a modular consent. So not everyone with Healthy Heart did this. They were given the option to download an app where we, what we called geofenced all the hospitals in the US to test the idea that, well, can we detect when someone's in a hospital? But it's kind of, it was kind of a proof of concept study because then you could geofence every fast food restaurant or every pharmacy or whatever you wanted, food, de food desert or area where there is fruits and vegetables and message someone, hey, go buy some fruits and vegetables. And it's not perfect, but we found that this app was fairly reliable at detecting when people were in a hospital. We're working on that publication right now. Um, the other thing I would add is that, as, as I mentioned, that Healthy Heart has expanded beyond just a cohort to being a platform that it's also expanded to becoming a resource for other investigators. And we actually recently received a, an award from the NIH to help develop a platform to enable other investigators to do mobile health-based research, to do exactly what we're talking about, to validate new devices, to study diseases in novel, more efficient ways of using devices. Um, so the hope is that we can provide this service to them. Do you think this represents the future of how we are going to see certain medical trials go in this sort of more distributed model just because of the economics of, the, of, of how expensive and how difficult it is to conduct these trials? I think so. I, I, um, I don't know that it's, I think it's going to complement conventional research. It's not going to replace. It's not going to replace. It. And, and, and but, it's not a panacea in the way that you're representing it. Right, absolutely not. And, and the other point I would make is there's still a lot to learn. So how do we keep people engaged? That's one of the biggest challenges is when you have a one-on-one -on -one physical, you know, in-person relationship with someone, okay, you better, come, you know, please come back here in a month and they don't come back and you call them. How do you do that remotely when you don't have the face-to-face -face interaction? So we're, we're working on... Well, if out. my son's gameplay on my iPad is any indication, you keep sending notifications until they do something. And I'm actually enrolled in the Healthy Heart Study, and it's been remarkable seeing how um, using the platform, I get nagged into doing this stuff. And I say that, you know, kind of jokingly, because it's actually really positive reinforcement to get emails and notifications on my phone about filling out surveys and, and completing these activities when I'm not used to that level of contact in other studies. Mm, good. Well, that's good to hear. And, and that's something we struggle with is uh, balancing not bothering people too much because we don't want to overburden them versus not letting them off the hook. And, and, and in fact, and we're always interested in feedback and we, we have focus groups and we solicit feedback. And the feedback we had received was 
rather than you're bothering me too much, it was more that people wanted more engagement and, and felt like, yeah, I enrolled in this study and didn't hear from you guys for a while. So, and we take that to heart and, and we realize, okay, we need to, we need to get in touch more. The other kind of cool thing with this sort of platform is we can do very quick, uh, randomized AB testing where we, okay, half the people we're going to bother them once a month and the other half we're going to borrow bother once a week and we'll see what sort of responses we get and you can get pretty quick kind of analytics on that that can help iteratively improve the the process how soon do you think you'll have you know some results to really report from a study like this so we've already have three publications um we have one um published in the american journal of cardiology demonstrating that when people are asked do you think alcohol is is good for your heart a third of people say yes, a third of people say no, and a third of people say I don't know. The other interesting thing is that those who think alcohol is heart healthy drink more alcohol. Uh, we have another study where we showed that secondhand smoke exposure is a risk factor for atrial fibrillation that had not previously been uh, demonstrated. And interestingly, secondhand smoke exposure while in utero or as a very young kid seems to be especially important, which suggests that there's something going on even early in development that contributes to the development of atrial fibrillation decades later. And then we have a third uh, publication where we validated an app uh, called a six-minute walk test, which is an in-person kind of test. One usually does with a nurse, compared it to an app and show that the app can work quite well. Um, we have some other papers looking at predictors of screen time and how screen time might affect sleep. Um, that's that, that uh, they're in preparation. The geofencing one I told you about is in preparation. Um, so it's a constantly. So uh, we we have a lot to stay tuned to. Um, Dr. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you. So are you ready for that double shot espresso? Oh yeah. <laughs> it's weird to me that there is no real link between caffeine and those those palpitations we feel aren't really arrhythmias. At least it doesn't hold up in this study. I mean, that's good because I definitely, after having a couple of espressos, do feel those palpitations. And I'm glad to hear that they're not, you know, in any way negatively affecting my long-term heart health. Yeah, but I was surprised in the sense that I didn't really associate my personal alcohol consumption to that. And there's kind of negative evidence that alcohol does probably contribute in some way to these arrhythmias. So in, in a sense, there are risk factors that did hold up to scrutiny and others that didn't. It makes me a little bit more skeptical of some of just the applied advice when you go into the general practitioner outside of the stuff that we just know works. Yeah, I mean, that that skepticism came on when I, you know, when I was pregnant and I started getting all kinds of advice that did not have any basis in science. You know that the general practitioner or even the specialist in some ways is often 10 years behind in their research. So it's important to pick your doctor wisely. What do you think about a study of this size it, it delivered digitally? Do you think something like that can actually be a model for how other studies are uh, take place in other domains? Absolutely. And I do think that big data is in some way going to ch you know, change a lot of scientific questions in the future. I think that we still have to worry about controls. But you know, I think also when you have such huge sample sizes, you're really sampling the population after a certain point of time. And you don't have to worry so much about the confounding variables in a way because you're not necessarily going to be looking at 
um, a, a sample of the population that doesn't represent the population because you're looking at the population. So um, I am excited about them. I think that there is still the question of how accurate uh, the information is that's being collected. So, you know, there have to be checks and balances to make sure that people are doing what they say they're doing and, and what the study authors want them to do. Um, but ultimately, yeah, I do think that that this is the in some ways the gold standard of the future of um, you know looking at these kinds of health questions. I'm actually really excited to participate. I've been participating in Healthy Heart for the last year. And we actually have the ability for Inquiring Minds listeners to join a special group that will be tracked differently. Uh, so in the sense, it'll contribute to the, the big data of the Healthy Heart project. But we'll actually be able to sort out um, you know, years down the road and actually see if our listeners match up to the general populace in some way. Wait, so you mean we could see whether our listeners have better hearts than the general population? Or at least do they listen to doctors' recommendations more <laughs> so than other groups? I mean, we could see. I think it'll be an interesting project. We'll put the link on our Tumblr. There's a special link to go through uh, to sign up. And I have to say, after being in the, the study for a year, it's not been uh, too difficult. I thought it would be really onerous. I've been in other studies that have taken so much time, even though they're really valuable. This one has been, you know, reasonable for me to take part in so far, uh, it, you know, a few hours over the course of a year. And I, I don't want to be on the other side, like, as, uh, you know, Greg Marcus said, like, you know, taking in all of that data and sorting it out and validating it, that's a ton of work, but it's the important work that's ahead of them. But I'm happy to be a contributor. So I hope uh, our listeners join in. And I hope we don't find that Inquiring Minds listeners, through listening to Inquiring Minds, develop heart arrhythmias. I hope not either. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. We want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chan, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Brendan Ryan. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com where you can find show notes and other things. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your own heart rhythms, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our own heartthrob, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari. You can find me at the bar watching hockey. See you next week. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.